Today on the SCG podcast, we speak to one of the legends of Australian media. Of course, such a relationship with the SCG, Ian Heads. Also today, Alison Mitchell. You'll hear her voice on both ABC Radio and Channel 7. She actually has a real Australian connection. Look, as a boy growing up in Western Sydney, being a massive lover of sport, rugby league and cricket and all other sports, seeing the... The byline Ian Heads was very much uh, the soundtrack of my life and it's a real treat to have Ian on the SCG podcast today. How are you, Ian? I'm great, thanks, Tim. Thanks for your kind words, mate. It's lovely to be back here. No, 100%. And uh, this ground, it's extraordinary, isn't it? We've said it a few times throughout the course of the week in the past few months that it's not a place you can take for granted. No, I think it's one of those special places in sport. Um, this one for Sydney people is very special because it, it shared the sports around to an extent and there's uh, memory, many memories left out there, I think, of you know, cricket, of course, and uh, rugby league, rugby union. So it's an it's a iconic place, if I could put it that way. 100%. Yeah, you're part of the, the Media Hall of Fame here at the SCG, so you spent a long time as a member of the working media. But what about the early days? What, what are your earliest memories of the Sydney Cricket Ground? Well, it, um, it's been part of my life, sort of. It started me off probably something that happened back in 1950, sort of kicked me off, really, when two of my uncles um, grabbed me one Saturday. There was a deciding Ashes test to be played here, Great Britain versus Australia, and my uncles have been looking Rugby after. league? Rugby league? Rugby league yeah. test, yeah. My uncles have uh, been very good to me. My father was killed in the war, so, um, but I had two good uncles who were sporting guys. And they brought me out here to see the um, this settling. The, the uh, was one test each at that stage, Great Britain, Australia, and um, uh, an, an amazing day. The stays in my memory in that it was an extremely wet winter that year, in contrast to what we have at the moment, of course. But um, uh, and the ground was probably six inches under mud, really heavy mud. But the game went ahead as it used to in those days, and um, they dragged. They took me up onto the old hill underneath the scoreboard there, and some people might remember that the way it used to be. And mm. um, I watched the Test match from there, and it was such a colourful afternoon in that the uh, the view wasn't great. The ground was in terrible state. It rained all afternoon, and this tough slogging Test match unfolded there. And the uh, <coughs> I soon learned the trick. The blokes around me were. Um, who were older than I was, obviously, but uh, they were they bought numbers of beer bottles, which they were emptying the quant- drinking the, uh, the drinking the beer and then turning the bottle upside down, standing on the upturned bottle, so they could get a good view of of what was unfolding. And what unfolded was a remarkable Test match in which Australia won back the uh, won the Ashes for the first time in 30 years, and uh, sparking immense um, joy and dancing on the sidelines afterwards. So. Um, I think you probably understand that a day like that would stick in your memory, and it certainly has in mine. Got you in, absolutely. It did, yeah. With, with losing your father in the war, uh, look, what, what, what is your snapshot of, of that now, um, having your own children, grandchildren, um, growing up uh, without a father? How, how, do you, how do you look back at that? Um, I, I look back with some sadness, obviously, when I think about what happened because it made life so hard for my mother. I, I finished up living, my daughter, my uh, sister and I stayed, lived with my mother and my grandmother and they did a wonderful job, I think, uh, looking after us. But there was all, always that um, f- 
feeling of something, that something terrible had happened and I did, never knew much about it. My mother never talked about it, ever. Um, and I think that's just the way people were then uh, in, in some families. She just got on with the business of raising her children and uh, trying to build a life as good as she could for them. And she did that. So, um, you know, I'm wonderfully grateful to what she did. But um, the sense of not having a father, you know, I think on some of the big sporting days that I've had, I've often thought it'd be lovely to have had, a, you know, your dad alongside. He'd be immensely proud. There's little doubt of that. And I, I suppose having <coughs> been through what you've been through, it gives you an extra sense of appreciation as to being a father yourself and a grandfather and, and so on. Yes, it, yes, it certainly does. Yeah, it's um, it's a delight to come back to the Sydney Cricket Ground now and then. The fact that my son um, has been working here for some years now, and I'm I'm certainly proud of that. He's done a great job too. But um, so the link with the ground with the ground goes back uh, such a long way to you know my original uh, my original toe in the mud here in uh, back in 1950. To uh, the link continues today, and that's lovely. You know, it's a it's a nice thing. Do you get a feeling that is evoked inside of you when you walk in here? Like it's uh, yeah, the beautiful old stands and, and look, the, the new grandstands or the newer grandstands have all been built with an element of sympathy for, for what this ground is. Yeah, it's always been a special place, Tim, I think. And I think now it's a, it's a wonderfully special um, thrill to walk through the door. It's very different to what it was, certainly completely different to that day in 1950. But... Um, it was very special. I started coming out here in nineteen in the nineteen sixties as a copy boy to uh, to ring through the copy for an old sports journalist named George Crawford, who used to uh, handwrite his copy. He never even learnt learnt to type. So that's a bit of a gap between the uh, you know the uh, facilities you have now and the way it was then. And my job was to ring George would uh, take running copy on the first half of the match. My job would be to try and read his copy and uh, ring it through. Uh, George had probably the worst handwriting in the, <laughs> in the history of the world, and it was, and he liked the beer as well. And his his handwriting did tend to deteriorate a little when he'd had a few beers. Sometimes. So I was left to try and struggle out, make sense of these words, or were they words, or hieroglyphics, or whatever they might have been, you know. So that was my early memory, sitting at the back of the member stand, mm. <clears throat> crushed in there with some other journos, some famous ones amongst them. And uh, getting the feel of, you know, I wasn't quite a sports writer then, but I was getting a sense of what it might be like. Had to rework a bit of uh, George's stuff from time to time. I certainly did, yeah. Particularly on the Monday nights, I used to go with him to the uh, the rugby league met on the every Monday night at Phillips Street. They had their meeting, and uh, they'd have vigorous debates, and uh, it was a very live wire thing with all the people from the, all the uh, representatives of the various various clubs there. Then afterwards they'd tap the keg, and uh, so or well before it they'd probably meet at a pub somewhere, and then after after the thing they'd tap the keg. But I, again, I had the job of trying to ring through to the copy taker what George was trying to make the sense he was trying to make out of that evening's meeting. And I'm in no way critical of George Crawford; he was a great uh, sports writer, in fact. But um, I just wish he'd had better handwriting. Oh, it's, it was a great apprenticeship, uh, even by <laughs> accident. The the moments, the games, the occasions that you've covered at this ground, extraordinary. If we isolate rugby league for a moment and look at those games of the 70s, look at the 73 Manly Sharks grand final, which was uh, arguably the, the most violent game of all time, then the Graham Langlands white boots in 75 and that mighty Roosters. I'm just touching on two of the games. Sure, yeah. 
Yes, <coughs> I guess there's many memories. There's a jumble of memories. You know, you, you're mentioning those three games. Uh, they were quite extraordinary in a way. I think that um, Sharks match, uh, Manly match, that probably still st- stands as the fiercest game I've ever... Fiercest game I've seen here in Australia. I've seen some pretty tough ones overseas too, but um, it, the referee... Keith Page refereed. I think he, for some reason, he just let him go in the first half, and uh, it was just on for young and old. You know, it was amazing. It's the sort of game that couldn't possibly happen today, but um, it's certainly got a quality about it because of what happened that day. You know, it's a very tough game, and I think the players who played that day probably feel a bit chuffed about the fact they played in a very fam- famous game and survived. You know, <laughs> they were probably lucky to. But um, yeah, there's certainly I've got very many memories of the ground and. Um, uh, you know, I can picture someone like Reg Gasney, and I saw Reg play here quite often at the ground, and somehow it seemed to me the ground, uh, he was such an athlete, you know, beautiful runner w- with the ball, and just something about the way he carried himself that I can still picture if I come to this ground. I'll do it, did it again today, sitting out the front there, just thinking of a try. I saw a Reg score here one day with his head thrown back, which was his characteristic, and this beautiful uh, long stride that he had as he raced away. So, um, you know, if I think if I sat down for some hours, I'd come up with a heck of a lot of uh, um, memories. They come flooding back. You know, they tend to stay with you, the great days and, the you know, the great grand finals. And, and then it's a great, a great brawl, George Biggins against um, the Englishman, um, whose name has just escaped me briefly, but I'll come back to that. Was it Mal Reilly? Mal Reilly, yeah, which was probably the most vicious individual battle you could ever see two tough real tough guys of the game neither of them was going to take um, a backward step and um, George particularly tells the story very graphically of what happened involving a certain amount of eye gouging and it's not the not the prettiest story I've ever heard but um, they were tough guys they went and uh, they didn't have a beer afters I think they had the beer the next night they'd both got sent off of course and uh, they had a beer the next night at the league it was to them it was just something that happened football it was just football the way it was then yeah, they were wild days. There's little question of that. And, uh, yeah, they were. The, the 70s also, like, and I'll, I'll get on to cricket in a tick, but uh, to see 77 and 78, two replays, it was, like, remarkable. It was. <coughs> it certainly was. You know, the odds hugely against that happening, but um, there was a kangaroo tour pending as well, and that um, sort of uh, jumbled things up a bit. But it was, that was pretty amazing. You know, that... A game like that to me is, is, you know, we talk about the glorious uncertainty of sport and that, the, those sort of games epitomise that, I suppose, that now and then something completely unexpected happens. And that's, um, to me, that's been one of the great attractions of sport. You can never be... I remember Tom Goodman, the great old um, Sydney Morning Herald <coughs> journalist, he said to me one day, and he was a fine bloke who's laid down a terrific platform for all who followed, I think, but he said to me one day... Um, don't ever go to the game with your name made with your mind made up about what's going to happen. In other words, you were saying make sure you just cover it with an open mind and fairly, you know. And I, I suppose I tried to do that over the years and um, didn't always get it right, probably. But um, I had a lot of fun along the way too. None of us get it right all the time, <laughs> and, and it's a bit of an anecdote of life. You sort of, if you look at the world with your eyes wide open and. and you'll tell your story way better than if you've already closed off to your own view on things. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I think um, and I think it's um, important. I remember once talking to the league about the, f- get the younger journalists getting a chance, say for rugby league, I was in, it was in that context this time, um, to 
um, my early years were spent on the sidelines of all those tough old Sydney grounds, sitting up very close to the action. And I got a real sense of the hardness of the game, you know, the smack of the tackle and the, the, the cry of pain and that sort of thing. You, you quickly came to have respect for the blokes playing the game, you know. I did suggest to the league one time a few years ago, I suggested it wouldn't be a bad idea for the young players now and again just to sit on the sideline, somewhere around on the sideline where Frank Hyde and Tiger Black and the old commentators used to sit, just to give them a sense of just um, just how tough it is, you know. Because, the, the, you know, the, the television coverage is wonderful, you know, the coverage of the game is terrific, but sometimes it perhaps sanitises the game just a fraction. It's, it's even, whatever you see there, it's probably harder if you're up close. Yeah, it was really interesting as a boy of the 70s to, to go out to, like, you were working, but... I was just there at Cumberland or Henson or North Sydney Oval or Lidcombe and, and Rex and Frank could all be there on the sideline. Yeah. You'd get it in all of its uh, all of its glory and Rex would say, get that bloke out of the way. Eventually he'd be in the commentary box. But but back in those days, yeah, you did get a touch of it. What about cricket for you? What about what about the uh, what about all these great test matches and, and the things that have happened out at this ground? Well, so many famous moments. My career, I suppose, tended to take me down another path to, um, to, to rugby league largely and, and swimming and Olympic sports. But I was always a big fan of cricket and I used to come out here in the um, probably the 50s, I think. It was the 50s and with a mate of mine, we used to go and stand on the, on the hill and we'd have a tennis ball and a cricket bat. We'd have a bit of a hit. And uh, if we happened to hit one over the fence, one of the, the player feeling in the deep would uh, usually retrieve it, <laughs> throw it back over, throw the tennis ball back over. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, mag- the names were magic to me. I didn't... Um, I, I, I never met Don Bradman, but I, the name was uh, such a magical name. I do have a letter from him, actually. I wrote to him once, and he wrote back to me, which was very kind of him. But, um, the, you know, Neil Harvey, some of them, the guys that I got to know... Norman Neil, yeah. Yeah, I was the day. I was the day. Uh, I was there the day that um, Neil Harvey held out against. Um, went very close to winning a Test match for Australia in, against England. A wonderful game, you know. Intense last couple of hours as he tried to hang on with the tail flagging. You know, I still remember that so well. And then I got to know Neil well in later years. A great bloke who just loved talking about cricket and such an athlete. You know, and and. If you ever interviewed him, he was always fantastic for a one line, wasn't he? Oh, like yeah. Neil Harvey, he was never going to sit on the fence and still doesn't. No, he says what he thinks, Harvey, mm. doesn't he? And he's, he's refreshing in that way. The, uh, I think he became a bit of a target for the media you know, a few years back in that he would always give a strong response, but he'd give an honest response. And uh, he was such a great, wonderful player to watch, a left-hander who... Uh, just something about him, you know, had a certain style. I think, you know... I think of the Gasniers and, the, and mm. I saw a little bit of Keith Miller and um, some of the great players. And they, there's an extra quality about them at times when they, uh, as Mike Gibson famously wrote in the Telegraph one day when Gasnier won a game here, he talked about G- Reg Gasnier hitting the, hitting the magic button at half time and Gasnier carved up the t- other team in the second half. Lovely phrase, but there's a bit of that about the champions. You know, there's a magic button there somewhere and they now and then they'll hit it and off they go yeah puff the magic dragon of course was reg gasnier and neil harvey he's the end of the era he was 18 years old when he scored that magnificent hundred in england uh, during the invincible series and he's the last surviving member of that team and uh just the end of an amazing generation of cricketers i i always think uh, and bring it up often when i'm hosting things 
at the ground or talking about the SCG, catching the old red rattlers and walking up for Vaux Street and you'd be on the hill or in the bob stand and the, the peanuts would be in the shell or sugar-coated <laughs> and it was just a... And, and, and every time I come back, I feel the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah there are certain um, traditional things happen, including the hot dog afterwards, which was mm. never a good idea. They're always out the front. Yeah, and they, the, what went into them, I don't know. I don't, think, I don't think it was such a good idea to have one, but we all did, of course. But, uh, yeah, there's, well, there's some great colourful stories. There's a, a Balmain player on George Watt. This, this is how different it was, I suppose. Mm. It used to uh, played for Australia and went to England, became a star player. But he, uh, he liked to drink too, George, and he used to come to the game. He'd get the tram from Balmain to the, the hotel in Park Street, Sydney. I can't think of the name of it, but he'd come and have, he'd have two schooners and then he'd get the tram to, the, to, to play the match, the match of the day at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, and that was his ritual, you know, that he, he, uh, he, there were no fancy coaches or anything to take him out there. He'd get tram, tram, two beers, then he'd be in the middle of the scrum out at uh, Sydney Cricket Ground. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Bob McCarthy still tells the story about when he was a young guy and he got caught in the traffic and almost missed the game, that, that most famous yeah. game when he was a boy. And, and he, he had to tell all the staff, oh, I'm actually playing, so let me in. He was coming past the bat and ball. But uh, the the thing about, and, and those hot dogs, you get your doggies, you can almost hear it in your, in your head right now. But uh, look, it's, it's a privileged life, isn't it? And I know that you would have worked very hard to, to get where you did in your career, but... Once you're there, it's a very privileged life, isn't it? Because I often say to people that I don't really feel like I work for a living. I love it. Yeah, it is a privileged life. I've had a fortunate life in that way, for sure, Tim. I've been to a lot of great sporting events and sort of stumble into it, you know, as you do in life sometimes. Um, things open up for you, and uh, and I think you've got to relish the opportunity, and I've certainly done that, you know, and I, I, uh, and I had a lot of help along the way, and I think that's part of the game too, that when you're... Um, working in the business. I had great help from some of the journos from other papers, you know, Tom Goodman, who I mentioned, and I worked with Phil Tresseter, who was a wonderful... Uh, he's the only, he's the only uh, sports writer I'd met to that point. I'm sure it's different now who could touch type. When he, the only reason he could touch type was he's an outstanding piano player. Wow. So he could do those two things, you know. Very good writer on um, rugby and uh, golf and various things. But they were all prepared to help the next generation. I'm sure that happens now too. I hope it does. It's a, it's a busier faster world oh, but it's important it's important for it people is. of my generation yeah. to to look back and help uh, otherwise you're denying what happened to you because I was assisted as well as we all were otherwise you're yeah. never going to get anywhere yeah as uh, Harry Bath the great coach said when he retired he, he just quoted that great old phrase about those who drink the water must never forget those who dug the well mm. and that's so true isn't it I've, yeah I've Without forcing it, I've tried to live by that. If I can help a, you know, one of the journals, I'll do it, of course. You know, yeah, as you will, I know. Yeah, oh, it's great, and it's great to have that. Oh, it was Harry Bath, and there's another great memory of yeah. him in the tracksuit, sort of chewing on Ardaths or Winnie Blues or whatever they were as the coach of the Dragons through Bath's Babes and uh, that, that era of the 70s. Uh, you, look, we could talk all day, but I, I just wanted to isolate the fact that the ladies' stand and the members' stand are now heritage listed how important is that little passage of history oh i think it's enormously important i mean they give the ground the ground's got character anyway but they add to that they're part of that character in such a big way i think that the the two of those stands uh, i could never amend the ground without them obviously and they're um uh they, they lift the ground to another level i think i think anyone who walks in here cold and then has a look around they're moved by what they see 
and I'm sure that's you know that's and that's it's a lovely effect to have. The, the, you get a sense of being in a special place, and I suppose someone like me does in in slightly different ways. And then I inevitably it will bring back memories for me of things of famous things I've seen happen there, and that uh, that you know that's a further lift, I guess. If those if that clock tower had eyes, it would. Uh, it's seen Sir Donald Bradman walk out. It has yeah. seen. Puff the Magic Dragon and has seen those amazing rugby league, rugby union test matches and uh, we're you know, we're seeing a, a country that is really suffering at the moment because of the drought and the bushfires and I think that a lot of the people that are going through pain at the moment will be flicking on their radio or the TV when they get a moment just to stay in touch with what's happening with the test match because sport holds that place for people, it is a bit of an escape Oh, absolutely, <coughs> absolutely. Yeah, it can uh, it can give a whole nation a lift, you know. Uh, and I think this this ground. I mean, there are other great grounds in Australia, but there's something about this place that um, uh, it's hard to put into words, really. But it is so very special. And I think anyone who know, likes, you know, knows anything about sport or has a you know a um, a great interest in it. Uh, gets that feeling when they come here. I've spoken to some of the, a lot of the old footballers over the years, how special it meant to them to come here to the cricket ground. And the, I'd soon learned, first going out there as a cadet journalist, wet behind the ears, I remember getting the first instruction that I got when I got to the ground was, you know, it's a Sydney cricket ground, you've got to put on a coat and tie. So we did. All the media would wear coat and tie to, the, uh, to cover the league and, you know, rugby and other games. And thank God your uncles took you out there in 1950. And it's been an extraordinary career and it's great to have a chat. Thanks for being on the SCG podcast. Great pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Alison Mitchell. Now, a lot of people have heard your voice here in Australia, both on Channel 7 and on the ABC. But we don't know that much about you. Welcome to the SCG podcast. Thank you very much, Tim. Great to be here. I love this cricket ground to start with. Isn't it an amazing place? And I'll ask you about this ground and other grounds in, in just a moment. But it was ironic, I was just having a chat with Rob Shearlock, who I've worked with a lot. Now, many people won't know who Rob Shearlock was. But he, he's quite a famous cricket director, and I work with him at Channel 9. He just told me that you work with him at Sunset and Vine on the old coverage in England as a, as a production assistant. How many years ago was that? Well, if I tell you how many years ago, I'm going to give away my age, aren't That's I? Right. Don't worry, <laughs> no, I've got I was, you covered by a long okay, way. Okay, good. Yeah. No, well, I, I, I was 21 years old, mm, oh, and good. I had just finished my university degree, where I had done a dissertation on cricket and television, so I knew I wanted to go into sports media. Mm. And as part of that research, I'd actually approached Sunset and Vine, who did Channel 4 cricket at the time, and I'd been in and I'd shadowed for a day. So I'd met Rob Sherlock as director and shadowed him and interviewed him. Richie Benno was part of the team, so Richie had granted me an interview as well. Um, all, all sorts of those, the big names who were working in the game at the time. And off the back of that, in the following summer holidays, before I went off to do my actual journalism qualification, they invited me back to actually give me a paid job. So that was my first sort of paid job in cricket, which was a runner on the coverage. So my job was to race around the ground at test matches. It was the 2001 Ashes series mm. and basically keep the crew and commentators fed and watered all day. So including Rob Sherlock, but including Richie Benno, Michael Slater actually was part of the commentary team Mark. for the one day. As Mark Taylor was part Mark of that. Nichols. Mark Nicholas obviously was part of that. Um, Ian Smith, who's now here commentating mm. on the, the New Zealand series, was over that summer when the Kiwis were there. And so, yeah, I was basically making tea and coffees all day. You must have felt like all your Christmases had come at once. For, in that first instance, oh, when, when you arrived, having had this passion and, and here you were, 
oh, yeah, I'm happy to do the interview, Richie Benno, and it just all rolls out. That, that must have been an extraordinary time. Yeah, it really did. It felt really important to me from a sort of work perspective and career point of view, getting mm. in like that, because I had this 10,000-word document which showed that I really understood the game. And I think particularly as a female coming into this environment where it was also male-dominated, that I needed to have something which showed that I understood the nuances. And the number of times that throughout my career you'd get stopped and asked, oh, you're doing this job, but do you like cricket? You know, as if someone had decided that, you know, they needed a female somewhere and so they'd sort of drop you in to do this job. But, yeah, having this big dissertation where I looked at the, the impact of technology on the game, looked at the impact of technology on, if you like, the sort of moral essence of the game and the, the theory of, you know, the... the, the the, um, the authority of the umpire and, and all these different things. Um, yeah, definitely, I believe, went a long way into demonstrating that I understood the fabric of cricket. Um, so, yeah, it helped to get me in the door. And, yeah, from bringing Richie his cappuccino, no sugar, um, and help, you know, he always had his little uh, card table set up mm. in the corner of the Channel 4 commentary box. So part of my job in the morning was to come in and get the box set up. So making sure there's you know, water set out, the, the day's newspapers I'd bring in. Richie had to have a copy of the Racing Post. Big Loved horse racing, racing fan, yes, absolutely. And that was where it all started for me. Yeah, God rest his soul. Look, look, I was at Channel 9 for 23 years and I reflect often on how welcoming Richie was to people like me, producing, reporting, broadcasting, and, and that's the kind of guy he was. And people love coming up and saying, oh, did you play cricket? Did you do this? You did have to crack the egg, though, didn't you, When to get into the commentary box. How, how did that start? How did you move from there finishing your studies and and getting the toe in the door to being on air well definitely all the work i had done behind the scenes Mm. whether it was that time that season with channel 4 being a runner to spending a couple of weeks with the the team the wisdom cricket monthly magazine so the written journalism side of things to uh one night a week job i had at my local bbc radio station where again i was doing everything from picking up the phone lines for competition winners to sorting out the music for the next day's DJs, just getting a feel for how local radio Mm. worked, um, to then going and actually getting my journalism qualification. Um, I spent a bit of time actually working in the marketing department at Trent Bridge as well. So I had a feel for sort of the administrative administrative side of the game Mm. as well, which all helps journalistically, you know, going down that path later on. You get get to understand how the game is run as well. Mm. Um, And then really, once I did my journal qualification it's a matter of applying for jobs and my first job was at the BBC Asian Network where cricket was their number one sport because it was serving the British Asian communities in the UK so India cricket Pakistan cricket Bangladesh and Sri Lanka Um, and that's where that's where I did my grounding really and grew from there into BBC local radio doing um, all sports so breakfast sports news Saturday sports programs eventually graduating up to Radio 5 Live, which is the main news and sport network in the UK. And they started me doing, I did county cricket in the summer, other sports in the winter, until I suppose the the biggest break in terms of moving on my cricket was 2005 when I got an opportunity to travel to Pakistan with the England team. And that was my first tour away. Um, Coming back from that, I was doing ball-by-ball commentary within a, a year on the county game because I was doing lots and lots of reporting. So traveling up and down the country, quite a solitary existence actually but sitting in commentary boxes with like shield games here very few people but I'd be transmitting reports every half hour on the state of the game I just remember saying to the producer one day you know I've got so much more I want to say about about these games and what's unfolding in front of me and all I was really doing was number crunching to give the scores and a little bit of context and so I started commentating into a into a tape really 
and getting some feedback on it. And so I had a lot of colleagues who were happy to listen to that and support me in me wanting to do that. Uh, and eventually got to a point when I was competent enough to commentate on some county games. And 2020, actually, mm. I think, was a real vehicle for me to get into the sport because it was new, it was a bit funky, and it sort of lent itself to having a very new and different voice covering the games as well because there weren't any females doing commentary uh, then. So it was new, it was different. 2020 lent itself to mm. that. And then you have to sort of work your way through from a bit like a player from T20s, ODIs, and then eventually you get an opportunity to call a test match. It's great to get the context. It's great to hear the story because people just flippantly hear oh here's a voice but they never really go to endeavor and find out exactly where it comes from your your story is anecdotal of a lot of media careers and other careers and whenever i i'm sure the same speak to young people how important is it that you did that runner's job that you did that solitary travel that you did that number crunching that you made that coffee for richie because it all adds and helps when you get to that Broadway stage, doesn't it? Definitely. You shouldn't ever put anybody, you know, drop them in at the top level. You know, it wouldn't happen in, in any profession mm. that shouldn't happen in, in broadcasting or, or journalism. Um, yeah, the, the stories you get to cover along the way go a long way into establishing your, your credibility, which is, you know, that and the trust you gain from the audience. You're two sort of breadwinners, really. You know, without those, you you're not going to go very far. And the credibility is built up through the experiences you gain and then the, the way you do your job and the audience then sort of give you their trust in return. A little bit of that can be luck to a degree, sort of what stories you end up covering, where you are, right place, right time. I had a couple of big ones, which I think really helped me to establish my credibility within the sports room, I guess, in the BBC. You know, quite heavy stories, actually, one, one being... Um, Bob Warmer when he died in the middle of the World mm. Cup in 2007 and I'd just been sent to that World Cup as a, as a reporter and you never you know you never travel to a, a sporting World Cup then suddenly reporting on the suspected murder of someone you know and that was a, a huge learning curve for me um, but it went a really long way into I suppose sort of showing a, a maturity that I had at, at a young age and it certainly elevated me in, in my status within the BBC sports room, which enabled me to then move forward to be trusted, become a trusted voice on air, you know, for many hours to do commentary, I think. And when those stories do come up, a lot of other ears prick up, don't they? Because they become a lot more than just a sports story. It oh. gets everyone listening. Um, now, you've got this beautiful, mellifluous English accent, but you're an Aussie! You're an Aussie! <laughs> Your mum's an Aussie! <laughs> Only half Aussie. Do you do that? <laughs> no, I'm gloriously half Australian. I forget you where it's Do you do an Australian up. accent? <laughs> no, mate. <laughs> no, mate. But your mum's yeah. from Adelaide. Yeah, my mum is from Adelaide. So she grew up um, in Queenstown. So Port Adelaide Football Club is also sort of a bit of the, the, the fabric of of um, yeah, my family background and her dad was a you know, huge football fan of, and yeah, big Port supporter. So I was really fortunate actually, I've been coming across to Australia every, every second Christmas all my life. I think mum you know, did a bit of a deal with my dad. I was like, well, if, you know, if I'm gonna marry you and we're gonna go and live, in, live back in England, then you, know, you need to make sure I'm at least coming back to Australia once every two years. So yeah, basically grew up with a you know, diet of Vegemite, and, uh, you know, good knowledge of, um, of marsupials and, <laughs> and koalas and kangaroos. Love it. Um, so, yeah, Australia and, the, you know, cricket played a massive part in mm. that and was sort of the, 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 the conduit and the, the gateway, I suppose, for my dad's relationship with all his in-laws in Australia because he flew out to England to get married to my mum in an era, you know, mid-70s when air flight was still mega expensive and he, he didn't have any of his own relatives 
you know, able to come across to Australia for the wedding. So he basically stepped off the plane and met his best man on the tarmac, you know, who was you know, a member of my mum's family. So um, cricket, though, was the thing they had in common on my mum's side of the family and my dad coming across as a, as a mega keen cricketer. So the, the Ashes banter has been a constant throughout my life. And my dad and my uncle actually still exchange one of those little ceramic ashes urns between them, depending on which country holds the ashes at any one time. So they have this sort of mock-like ceremonial handing over of the urn <laughs> at the end of an ashes series. Oh, there's nothing <laughs> like the bender. It can get fairly fierce, but at the end of the day, it is, is quite friendly. The, the South Australian arm of your family, they must be very proud. It's a great opportunity for them to actually turn the TV on or turn the radio on. And here, Alison, my niece, my cousin... Yeah, I, I do have to pinch myself at times because so many of my the strongest childhood memories for me and my times over in Australia are either being taken to the Adelaide Oval and sitting on the hill, you know, watching whether it's a you know an SA game or, or indeed an international, um, or you know sitting cross-legged on the carpet in front of the the, the TV set, um, you know, watching Nine's Wide World of Sports and listening to Richie Benno and and Tony Gregg and, and all of that crew. So. Yeah, it is, if I really think about it, it's a little bit surreal that, that I'm now part of this fantastic team on Seven um, who, are, who are doing just that now. So it's, yeah, I have to pinch myself a little bit. Family probably gets sick of my voice, to be honest. Oh, I'm sure they don't. <laughs> and, and look, you do a fantastic job, too modest to say it, but you do a wonderful, wonderful job. We're, we're going to be beaten for time because you've actually got to get back to the commentary box, but how good's this place? The Sydney Cricket Ground, you cannot take it for granted, can you? Oh, no, I loved it. I did say the other day, I walked in with Trent Copeland. We did a bit of a walk through the members' pavilion, down through the, into the, the, the bar, sort of the, the, the Sydney long room and down the steps onto the outfield. And yeah, you do just get that sense of history and of prestige. And I love the, the green, you know, corrugated iron, the turret roofs on the pavilion and the ladies' pavilion. So I just think long may the, the feel of the cricket ground last, no matter how it may evolve and modernise in the future. It's that element of heritage, I think, is what makes cricket grounds truly unique to you know the other sporting stadium that, that you get around the world and around the country so yeah, i love the sydney cricket ground love the adelaide oval as well though yeah <laughs> i do too and, and look ironically both have sympathetically been uh renovated like mm. like all the stands here have done with the sympathetic air and has done that adelaide uh reconstruction because i know they spent nearly 500 million dollars on it but yeah uh, i think it's stunning what they've done there. they really have done a great job look thanks so much for coming in i really appreciate it and uh allison mitchell channel 7 abc and an aussie as well you didn't know that <laughs> oh, thanks tim <laughs>